recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, October 25th, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This program tonight was inspired in part by a post on a Christogenia forum by NATO, which he entitled Christian Order, and in part because it is a natural follow-up to two previous programs, which we had here with Brother Ryan, entitled Christian Governance and On Brotherly Love. Once again, we have Brother Ryan here with us to discuss Walking the Walk. Hello, Ryan. Hell Christ, brother. Hell Christ. How are we doing? All right, I'm doing fine. You've been kind of kind of quiet lately. I'm not trying to put you out there, but I, I just, you know, the, the trolls and people, when, when somebody comes into their, um, in, into their view and then lays back for a couple of months, they figure right away, what happened to that guy? Well, well that doesn't mean that, you know, there's so many divisions and, and um, fleshly disputes in Christian identity, that they imagine right away that there's been some kind of big fallout or somebody made so-and-so angry and they're not talking anymore. It seems that people have come to expect that behavior of identity Christians, and it's pretty damn sad. I want to um, read a segment from the second book of Kings, from chapters 6 and 7. I will give my reasons for reading this after I read it. I don't know if Ryan has any opening comments or not. No, go ahead, brother. Okay. From 2 Kings, chapter 6. Because this is, uh, as Paul says in Romans chapters 15 and 16, these scriptures are here for us to learn from. They apply directly to us in this day and age. And it came to pass after this, that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his hosts and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria, and behold, they besieged it, until an ass's head was sold for fourscore pieces of silver, and the fourth part of a cab. A cab is a dry measure. I don't know why they didn't translate the word. And the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung was for five pieces of silver. And as the king of Israel was passing by upon the wall, they cried a woman unto him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If Yahweh does not help thee, how can I help thee? Out of the barn floor or out of the wine press? And the king said unto her, What ails thee? And she answered, This woman said unto me, Give thy son, that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and did eat him. And I said unto her on the next day, Give thy son, that we may eat him. And she had hid her son. 
And it came to pass, when the king heard the words of the woman, that he rent his clothes, and he passed by upon the wall. And the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth within upon his flesh. Then he said, God do so and more to me also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, shall stand on him this day. So the king was blaming the prophet of God for the travail which the children of Israel were suffering. And that's probably the next to last person that should be blamed, the last being God himself. And the text continues, But Elisha sat in his house, and the elders sat with him, and the king sent a man from before him. But ere the messenger, but before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, See you how this son of a murderer, referring to the king, that's Elisha referring to the king, has sent to take away my head. Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door, and hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him. The king would follow the messenger. And while he yet talked with them, behold, the messenger came down unto him. And he said, Behold, this evil is of Yahweh. What should I wait for Yahweh any longer? Then Elisha said, Hear ye the word of Yahweh. Thus saith Yahweh, Tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel or for a penny, and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. In other words, the famine would be lifted miraculously, and a large supply of inexpensive food would suddenly appear at the gates of the city. Then, a lord on whose hand the king leaned, in other words, a member of the king's court, one of the king's officers, answered the man of God and said, Behold, if Yahweh would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? He doubted the words of Elisha. And he said, Elisha said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shalt not eat thereof. And there were four leprous men at the entering in of the gate. And they said to one another, Why sit here until we die? If we say we will enter into the city, then the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. Now therefore come, let us fall under the host of the Syrians, who had the city under siege. If they save us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. And they rose up in the twilight to go unto the camp of the Syrians. For when they were come to the uttermost part of the camp of Syria, behold, there was no man there. They expected to see tens of thousands, perhaps, of Syrian soldiers. And there was nobody there. For Yahweh had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots and a noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said to one another, Lo, the king of Israel has hired to the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. 
Wherefore they arose and fled in the twilight, and left their camps and their horses and their asses, even the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. And such a camp would, of course, be well stocked with provisions, enough to feed the city plus some, because they would expect a long siege. They would be well supplied to endure it. And when these lepers came to the uttermost part of the camp, they went into one tent and did eat and drink and carried then silver and gold and raiment and went and hid it and came again and entered into another tent and carried thence also and went and hid it. Then they said to one another, We do not do well. This day is a day of good tidings, and we hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will come upon us. Now therefore come, that we may go and tell the king's household. They felt suddenly compelled to report what happened to the Syrian army to the king of Israel. So they came and called unto the porter of the city, and they told them, saying, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no man there, neither voice of man, but horses tied, and asses tied, and the tents as they were. And he called the porters, and they told it to the king's house within. And the king arose in the night, and said unto his servants, I will now show you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we be hungry. Therefore are they gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, When they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants answered and said, Let some take, I pray thee, five of the horses that remain which are left in the city. Behold, they are all as the multitude of Israel that are left in it. Behold, I say they are even as all the multitude of the Israelites that are consumed. In other words, the horses that were left in the city were also famished from hunger. And let us send and see. They took therefore two chariot horses, and the king sent after the host of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. And they went after them unto Jordan. And lo, all the way the road was full of garments and vessels which the Syrians had cast away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. And the people went out and spoiled the tents of the Syrians. So a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel, according to the word of Yahweh, according to what Elisha had told the king's officers would happen ahead of time. And the king appointed the Lord on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. This man was the scoffer of the day before. And the people trod upon him in the gate, and he died. Is the man of God had said, who spoke when the king came down to him. And it came to pass, as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, Two measures of barley for a shekel, and a measure of fine flour for a shekel, shall be tomorrow, about this time, in the gate of Samaria. And that Lord answered the man of God and said, 
Now behold, if Yahweh should make windows in heaven, might such a thing be? And he, meaning Elisha, said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shalt not eat thereof. And so it fell out unto him, for the people trod upon him in the gate. The crowd rushed through the gate to get it the, to get it the food and killed this man who scoffed at Elisha. Elisha was a great prophet in Israel. He had already had a reputation with the king before the siege of Samaria by the Syrians. When the king threatened Elisha's life, Elisha was sitting with the elders of the city. Having already seen great wonders, which Yahweh had done by Elisha, the officers of the king should not have doubted the words of the prophet. They should not have doubted the word of God. From what we have seen here, the sin of Samaria was great, and the people were in a deep state of apostasy. They didn't cry out to Yahweh. They started eating their kids. Yet, for the sake of God, they would be delivered. When the officer of the king doubted the prophet, he saw the proof of the prophet's words fulfilled, yet for his punishment, never experienced any of the benefit from that proof. He died. The people, however, were delivered, but not on account of themselves. The people were delivered on account of the word of God. Nevertheless, Samaria did not repent. And if we read the very next chapter of Two Kings... We see that a seven-year famine followed almost immediately, as we see in 2 Kings chapter 8. That famine was followed by further wars and defeats at the hands of the Syrians, wars with Judah. After the death of Elisha, the scripture reads in 2 Kings chapter 13, And Yahweh was gracious unto them, meaning the children of Israel even in their sin, and had compassion on them, and had respect unto them, because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them. Not Deuteronomy, or perhaps even in Numbers, Neither cast he them from his presence as of yet. The point of saying all this is twofold. First, to show how deeply the children of Israel were allowed to sink, even to the point of devouring their own children in the sight of their enemies. Yet Yahweh God would deliver them from those enemies. And these are just some of the sins from which Israel was promised redemption and forgiveness. The second point is that the children of Israel had the kingdom of Yahweh on earth. They had that kingdom under David and Solomon. The laws which they were compelled to live by were the laws of Yahweh their God. The laws we yearn to live by today. All of the surrounding nations were subject to them. The nearest 
enemies of God. Not the only enemies of God, but the nearest enemies of God, those within the scope of the biblical uh, account concerning Israel and Judah. The Amorites, the Hittites, the Edomites, the other tribes of the Canaanites were the slaves of the children of Israel. Yet, even with all that, with having full control of their own destiny situation under the laws of Yahweh their God, all they had to do was keep the law and they would have maintained that kingdom. They could not walk the walk. And what they had was taken away from them because they could not walk the walk. The sins of the ancient children of Israel are all being repeated by the children of Israel today in our society. Therefore, what makes anyone think that the kingdom should be restored to Israel under any circumstances today? We're no better than these ancient Israelites. We're not quite devouring our children in the sight of our enemies, but we sure as hell are letting our enemies devour our children in the sight of our God. We're no better than these ancient Israelites. We don't deserve the kingdom. Do you have any comments or interjections? Well, that's correct. Uh, they had the um, they had the kingdom. They had it. Uh, with David and with Solomon, they had it really well. And just like uh, in Israelite countries since then, in Europe and here in America, well, South Africa had it really well. South Africa was, was, they were a Christian white country. America was a Christian white country. And it was doing really well, but they, they just weren't happy with that. They, they were kind of like uh, Adam and Eve. They, they weren't happy with paradise. They had to, they had to, um, they had to dabble with sin. <laughs> That's what we got today. And, and um, there's not many Christians that would disagree with my statement that uh, um, it's, uh, Yahweh destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, it's amazing he hasn't uh, destroyed America and Europe and, and uh uh, these white countries that have turned their back upon God and upon his law, <laughs> they, want, uh, they want these Babylonian systems over them and these man-made systems, the laws, not only the statist law systems, legalities and legislation, they want the cultural, dare I say, morality, um, the, uh, you know, what we have, well, here in America, what we have with the well, the feminist movement is, uh, I see, coming on stronger than ever. I think it's on steroids nowadays. Um, you have all of these, uh, all the, all that we see that's going on about us. We feel like, um, we feel like Lot did in Sodom. We are vexed. He said he was vexed daily, and we're vexed. On every side, we're troubled. We we see, you know, the race mixing propaganda, the anti-Christian propaganda the anti-white propaganda, the feminist propaganda, et cetera, et cetera. We, we see all of that because the whites will not, white Israel will not, it's like you said, they had it so good, and that wasn't good enough. And then when they had it so bad that they were eating their children, 
And they still wouldn't, like you said, they wouldn't cry out to Yahweh. And you just wonder today, when will the Israelites cry out to, to Yahweh when things, I mean, we got just a little bit of things going on in this country today compared to what those ancient Israelites you were reading about had during their time. We're not eating our children yet. And even, even if we were eating our children, would we finally repent and cry out to Yahweh? Well, well right. Even when, um, after the time of Solomon under Jeroboam one, he mandated government-issued decree he mandated paganism. Israel had the opportunity to walk. They could have all went to Judah. The scripture records that some of them went to Judah. Most of them stayed behind in Israel and went along with Jeroboam I's mandate to paganism, just like today. Except today there's no, there's no Judah next door to, to um, flee to better than the United States. I mean, Canada is no better. It's even further down the path to, to, to um, Jewish communism. There's no Judah to flee to today that, that has a temple to, to our God and, and is seeking righteousness. Under the days of Jeroboam I, at least Judah had the pretense of that. But most of the people stayed behind and chose to obey the government decree to worship the golden calves. And we see that today. But we've seen that repeated today throughout the 20th century. Well, where the government made decrees, the king made decrees, which were antithetical to our God, and the people accepted it. They just went right along with it. But this is man constantly wanting to do something he can't do, make law. Man cannot make law. Only Yahweh God can make law. There's only one lawmaker and only one law. Christ said, keep my commandments. He didn't say, keep your own commandments. He said, keep my commandments. Right? I want to know Christagenia. Um, the ministry of Christagenia is, uh, well, you, you make some enemies inside of, uh, dare I call it, the Christian identity movement, within some, some Christian identity. Uh, you shock and, and appall them because... Um, you come out and you explain your true, Christogenia teaches true dual seed line, uh, that there really is only two bloodlines, um, not two or three or four bloodlines. Or six or eight or ten. Right. That, that all, all non-atomites are non-atomites. They weren't created by Yahweh. You, create, that. you teach this at Christogenia. Well, tonight the program is that there's only two ways. There's, there's uh, Yahweh's way, or there's the way of the world. Right. Absolutely. There's no political solution. We have to obey our God. The, the, um, you know, I think a, a lot of the reason for the division on what we should be doing, and I'm going to read the first couple of paragraphs of NATO's post in, in a moment just so that people understand what our purpose is here tonight. But, but the, um, the Christian patriots, the tax protesters, the, the, um, all sorts of people, the, the, the people that wanted true money instead of um, Jew money, all these um, splinter groups 
from the, the old Christian patriot movements of, of the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s. They all found, or, or at least a lot of people from each facet of, of patriotic Christianity, found a, um, a good, healthy message and a common theme in Christian identity, but they brought their um, Christian patriotism in with them, that their um, desire to be tax protesters and, and um, overthrow the government by force, the militia people. Uh, uh, Christian identity is a real potpourri of all different kinds of people dissatisfied with the government. Most of those people took their, their prior walk of life and kind of layered Christian identity on top of that. So uh, scratch the surface, and there's still tax protesters, and there's still well, Klansmen, or whatever they were before, wherever they came from. And, and um, I, I don't personally have any of that baggage, and uh, some of us don't. Some of us do, but we understand it, and, and we don't let those beliefs from our prior life get in the way of our understanding of Scripture. But many of us do, and that's the cause for a lot of division, as I see it, in, in, in um, Christian identity as to what the solution should be. I don't well, yeah. agree with that, but you do have a background in, in a lot of those things that I've just mentioned. Yeah. Well, yeah, the, uh, it, it, but it comes to a point, uh, it, it was that background that brought me to the identity message. I was a Christian, uh, but uh, uh, it brought me to the, the racial message, the identity message. Um, so it served that purpose. And there are people within that you know, movement. The problem is, here we are, 2014, heading into 2015. And I have studied the history of the Christian Patriot Movement, you know, as it was before I was born, back to the Committee of the States. Uh, before that, the, um, uh, the America First Committee, and, 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 of course, the Ku Klux, the Ku Klux Klan, First, Second, Third, Fourth, and Fifth Era. Um, and I've been, I've been a Klansman. I, I've been in, in, in those sorts of things. Um, a lot of those people don't want to progress forward. They want to live in the 1980s. Um, they, they, they want to live in even the 1990s. Um, they want to live in their past or someone else's past and romanticize it. And they want to tie on, like, like I said, uh, I was never part of a tax protest uh, type thing, although I, I, under, I read a lot of that literature and understood it. Um, there are people to this day, Christian identity, they ran, they're still fighting the 1980s you know, tax thing, um, and, and it's not that any of that information isn't factual or has some points to it. It's the point that you can't outvote Babylon. How are you going to play Babylon's political system and outvote it? Exactly. Um, we, we, we need Christ as king, and we need Christ's law. And when you had, uh, in 1983, you had some young, zealous men. Well, most of them were young. A couple of them were middle-aged. But in 1983, um, men formed an organization in the Northwest and uh, gave it a German, a German name, Bundeswagen, uh, 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 which means Silent Brotherhood. And um, some of those men were Christian identists and some were not. 
And um, they thought they were going to take it to, well, for lack of a better phrase, take it to Zog's ass. They thought that they were going to be the front line, the spear point of a white revolution in America. And um, they greatly, um, I believe they met well, and I was in contact with, I've written a, a few of them that were in prison, and I was uh, in a very regular contact with uh, one of the uh, one of the lieutenants, one of the men in charge, Bruce Carroll Pierce, who's since passed away in prison of a disease. But uh, and he was Christian identity. He was Christian identity back in '83. He'd been around Aryan nations. He'd been around different Christian identity uh, functions and groups and things like that. And uh, he told me, and he's told other people in interviews and stuff, but he also told me in letters, you know, he said, yeah, we just, we, uh, we had the wrong ideas. We, we, we met well, but we had the wrong ideas. We seen that it was not Yahweh's time. Right. Right. And another one is Christian identity. Um, his parents, um, uh, he, uh, his parents, and, and he is a young, young fellow, um, he was the youngest member of the British Society, you know, the Silent Brotherhood, a.k.a. The Order. Uh, as David Tate, uh, they lived there on the Church of Jesus Christ Christian Aryan Nation's uh, property there in, in Hayden Lake, Idaho. Um, he also, he's doing life in prison. Um, he's also, you know, has, he's Christian identity. Well, he calls himself Christian separatist now, but he's the same, basically, he believes in the identity message, the proper identification of who Israel is. And, uh, you know, he also will tell you, we, uh, we jumped the gun. We met well, but it was not Yahweh's time. Exactly. We, we can't, we can't uh, and what you're trying to, to, to get out here is, is we can't decide on our own when it's going to be the time. Right. I mean, many good people and, and women, even like Kathleen's work, um, uh, David Moran, who's a Christian identist that very few people know about, uh, died two, day, two years to the day, almost to the exact hour that Bob Matthews, leader of the, uh, the order, the British Rises, died. Um, he died exactly two years to the day, almost to the hour. Um, these people, that they meant well. And then you have men like Gordon Call. He was Christian identity. Um, you know, he was a hero to Bob, to Bob Matthews and to David Moran. You know Gordon Call. He was one of the. T- he was a member of uh, uh, the Comitatus. He was Christian Identity. I have some uh, some of his speeches and writings in, in booklet form here with me. And uh, he was one of my early before I came to Identity. He was one of my first introduction into identities. I was first reading and, and getting little hints from Patriot publications about identity. Um, that uh, but he. You know, he was big about trying to point out the tax. You know, the, the 16th Amendment wasn't legally ratified. Many federal income taxes, you know, put upon us by the Edomite Jew who runs the Federal Reserve System and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's good to, you know, to point these things out. But we, the Christian identists, we're the ones that people are supposed to be looking to when they're looking, when they see all the trouble, when they see that there's trouble on the left and on the right, and they see all the problems with the Jew and the Negro and, 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 and the stick and the tyranny of the government itself, when they see all these problems, they need to stop looking to man or trying to create their own solutions and look into, and, and, and with Christian identities are supposed to be showing them here is the way. Christianity was called the way. Was originally, it was referred to as the way in the book of Acts numerous times. 
It's the only way. It is the only way. The only other way is man's way. If you want to be posse comitatus, if you want to be a part of a tax protest group, even the Ku Klux Klan. I, I enjoyed my time in the Ku Klux. I, I learned a lot of things, had a lot of good fraternal fellowship there. But that is just a man-made organization. We need to be a body of with fraternal brotherhood with fellow Christians, period, and work for one another and for proclaiming the kingdom of Yahweh, our God. Not running around politicking for some next great white hope politician. Not, not out, uh, and I, let me, I got over 50 street protests. I've done, I don't know how many courthouse step uh, rally and things like that and speeches. I've done the, the old cow pasture speeches to the Ku Klux Klan. I love the fellowship, but none of that is going to, save our race as people are still today in 2014 ranting and raving on the internet. We got to save our race. No, what we need to be doing is being about our father's business. Isaiah 43 says, you are my witnesses, saith the Lord, or saith Yahweh, and his servant who is chosen to know and believe him and understand that he is God and there's no other God before him. That's what we're supposed to be doing when we identists are proclaiming, you know, it's one thing to be a secular white nationalist. Whoopie-doo, so you understand a race. Whoopie. But when you're a Christian identist, you understand the true meaning of why the white race is superior and supreme. And what we were created and ordained to be so, but we are blessed of Yahweh God to be what we are. Yahweh, he, I will say, you above all other All nations. That's superiority right there. We, should, we are supposed to be one of those persons. We should not be ashamed of calling ourselves white supremacists. I have never been. I've been proud to call myself white supremacist once I understood identity. I was like, wow, this is white supremacy. And the, uh, we are supposed to be proclaiming this and explaining to the secular white nationalists instead of you know, saying, oh, we will talk about religion. Race is number one. You blaspheme your God when you say that. We are to be proclaiming Jesus Christ. We are to be proclaiming the kingdom of Yahweh God. We are to be his witness. That's what it says in Isaiah 43. God is first and race is second. Honor you. Amen. The, the second, the first, I say the second commandment, right, It is honor your father and mother. I really mean the second concept in the Ten Commandments because the first several commandments are all about you and God. Right. The next several commandments, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, they're all about you and your race, honor your parents. How did, how did Jacob honor his parents? He went out and found a wife that his parents wanted him to marry, one of his own kind. Yeah, he didn't marry Canaanite wives and be a grief to his mom and dad. That was the first way that he honored his parents by being obedient to them and marrying somebody of his own race. So, so the next, from the fourth commandment onward, it's about your race and how you treat your brother. You, you don't sleep with his wife. You don't kill him. You don't steal from him. The first three commandments are about God. So it's God first, race second. And, and that's what a lot of um, 
even identity Christians try to put race first and, and, and God second. I understand where they're coming from only because that, that a lot of times it's just their terminology that is wrong. We can't do anything for our God. Our God doesn't live in a temple made with hands. He, he doesn't really respect our sacrifices. It's mercy I want and not sacrifice. So how do we honor our God? We honor God by caring for our brethren, by caring for our race. But God still comes first. If your brother says, hey, I'm starving to death. I'm going to die. We've got to eat this swine. You, you don't eat the swine. If you care about your God, you put your God first. When your brother wants you to break the law, you can't do that. You put your God first. So there are times when caring for your brother can be putting your race first and your God second when your brother wants you to violate his law. You don't do that. Your God comes first. Your race comes second. Right. Deuteronomy 10, uh, 12 and 13 say the Lord tells us the Lord requires, what he requires of us is to fear him and walk in his ways. Ecclesiastes 12 and 13 says the whole duty of man, Adam man, and the Israelite people is to fear God and keep his law. That's our, our duty. Micah 6 eight says what the Lord requires, once again, telling you what he requires of you, is to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before him. Hosea 12 and 6 tells us once again how to please God. It's keep mercy and judgment and walk in God continually. There's your answer. Well, well let me go back and, and read the first two paragraphs of, of NATO's post so that, so, so that people could see what precipitated, in, in some degree, this conversation. And, and this is... Um, fairly demonstrative of a lot of the division we see in CI on this issue. There was a certain topic of conversation among identity Christians, and I'm quoting NATO, which there are very different views on, and that is absolutely true. One will always get a different answer depending on who you ask. Well, well, this program is designed to see that there is a lot of agreement among certain identity Christians, at least. The question is, what should we be doing to further the kingdom of God? We are definitely under the oppression of the beast systems and mystery Babylon, and that is true. So much so that we are hated on account of Christ, and that is also true. This certainly makes it difficult to act on behalf of our beliefs outside of our personal lives. We risk discrimination, incarceration, and even death. And, and NATO, where he lives, he certainly does. There seem to be two basic camps when it comes to this subject, and I'll try to generalize them. The first camp believes in the Gideon type of action, where, if action is necessary, then God will overtly ordain the action, and God's action will come first. Victory would be a miraculous landslide, and, and that I, I agree with, for the most part. Until such a time, we are to order our personal lives in a godly manner and patiently await such a time, and NATO is right on the money there. 
And then he goes on to say, the second camp believes that it is our duty to take the initiative and that even prior to God's overt blessing, we must take the fight to the enemy. They believe we must do this in spite of the risk of death and incarceration, which would certainly result in the event of failure. And, and that is exactly what you portrayed speaking about the Silent Brotherhood and, and some of those fellows who believed that they could take the fight to the enemy, put it in Zog's ass, and, and, and defeat the government. That was in the 1980s. And, and in the 1980s, the, the political and the demographic climate of this nation were even much more in their favor. It's much further removed from that now. Yeah, we're in a lot worse position now than we were in the 1980s. In the, if I may interject, uh, in the 1980s, you had uh, every summer you had Aryan Nation Congresses up in the Northwest. You had uh, down in the south in, in uh, Stone Mountain, Georgia, you would have uh, yearly rallies there. Uh, Dave Holland would, would host those. And uh, you could get, you know, 1,000, 1,500 to 3,000 or more people on a weekend. And you'd have some, I don't know if you've ever seen some, any footage from any speeches from Aryan Nations Congresses back in the 80s or, or the Stone Mountain rally, uh, uh, rallies. Um, but I did, and there were some very, very just, just uh, fiery men, um, intelligent, and, and just you could tell they were natural-born leaders. You could get uh, now. I don't want to, you know, <laughs> Glenn Fraser Miller turned out to be the the Antichrist that he that he's always was. But you had a lot of good working-class uh, white well, white men. He could get, you know, two, three, uh, two to three thousand men dressed in camouflage, marching, marching in, in Raleigh, North Carolina, and things like that. You had the, uh, you had a lot of uh, the Jubilee newspaper. You had all these different publications. A lot of them were identity publications, but not all. You had a lot of, um, uh, a, a lot of uh, racially, let's call it white Christian, uh, a white Christian, a militant white Christian. Uh, uprising right under the uh, right under the skin right under the body politic if you will it was wanting to come now of course at that time i was just a young dumb uh, um you know teenager i didn't know anything any of the stuff was going on right but um but uh you know looking back and knowing and personally knowing men that brought me to identity that have been through that and lived through that and they showed me what they've been through in their videos and and uh i read so many publications from that time and uh, it was like, wow, what an amazing time. Um, it, it was, there was just that climate there. And I always tell people, you know, the men like the order, the, the British flag, the Silent Brotherhood, those men, are, those that are still in prison, haven't died or whatever, uh, those men went to prison. I always tell people they went to prison because the white, white Israelites uh, didn't care. They could care less. They just wanted to know what was on TV that night. Uh, they didn't really realize what was really going on in this country. And there were a lot of, uh, when I see the old footage, when I talk, uh, talk to these men uh, that lived in that time, and they were, you know, in their uh, 20s, 30s, 40s at that time, and the, just the, the fire and honesty in their eyes uh, from the videos and from talking to them in person later, um, 
there was just, uh, I, I understand, the, you and I talked about this the other day, uh, Bill, it was like a spirit in the 1980s. Uh, it was just this, uh, this drive. Um, it was there, and it was right under the surface, but the majority of whites just didn't care. And it, to me, I look back on that, and that's a heartbreaking time. Well, well that time is the last time to show Christians, white Christians, I believe, that they can do it themselves, that they have to turn to their God and put him first. And they were not doing that in the 1980s. I know tax protesters. I myself was in federal prison with tax protesters, with um, people that went to jail because of that UCC movement and, and they tried to create their own money and, and um, file liens against judges and prosecutors and all sorts of things like that, thinking that they were redeeming themselves. They call it the redemption movement, whatever they call it. These people thought they could redeem themselves and, and beat the government with their own laws. And that can't be done. And, and um, th those people tried, and some of them tried again. One fellow was released from prison, and he was back two years later, Roger Yates. He was in maybe less than two years later. He did a five-year sentence and got out and tried the same thing on, all over again and, and got a 10-year sentence for... Um, filing liens and trying to make his own money and things like that, thinking that he could have the same um, the, the same ability to counterfeit that the Jewish banks do. But the Jewish banks, they have a license to do that, and individuals don't, especially individual white Christians. So the, the revelation asks, who can fight with the beast? And Roger Yates certainly could not. It's um, and I could name a lot of other names that nobody here would would, would recognize or, or wouldn't be so significant. A few of my listeners might recognize them, but but um, that's besides the point. These people tried to fight the government, tried to take it in their own hands, in their own way, whether it be with paperwork or whatever, and they failed. And that was the spirit of the '80s, and and um. It it's just wasn't the time. I'm not um, demeaning any of the, um, the, the men who, who thought that they were fighting the fight and thought maybe that they should be the Gideon of our time. A lot of those men had um, noble causes, but it wasn't time. Now, a lot of the UCC people I know and a lot of the redemption people they're just doing it out of their own greed. They don't want to pay for their houses. They don't want to um, satisfy loans when they had voluntarily borrowed money. We understand that the money's not real, that the Jews can, that, that the international banks create this money out of thin air. When you go for a loan, you're creating the money. We understand it's not real. But if you went for that loan, you're obliged to pay it back under, under God's law. Whether it's a, a, um, a, a, a loan from a Hittite or not. Abraham bought a field from a Hittite. 
because he had to have a field to bury his family. He paid for it. If you go buy a field from a Hittite, you too are expected to pay for it. You're not better than Abraham. That's the way it is. That's the, 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 um, the walk that we have to walk because we are in the, this time of punishment, this Babylonian world order. That's what we have to do. We, being Christians, should uphold our covenants and our promises and our obligations because, not because of the people that we made them with, but because we made them. So, I, I mean, I would tell anybody, don't go to the Jew for a loan. Don't do it. Do without until you can buy something what, with cash or, or, or save up or, or, or um, some other way. But, but don't borrow money at usury because you're just, you're, you're imprisoning yourself. You're enslaving yourself to the usurer. It's that simple. And, and that's just one aspect of walking the walk that our people just don't get. They, they have to keep borrowing money at usury. They can't, they can't keep themselves from it. And, and that's a difficult walk to walk, but that's, God hates usury. So, so. Well, you know, Bill, um, I've met, uh, I've met people that were not Christian identity or they weren't Christian at all. And they were in their own lives. And with the internet, you can certainly just, uh, you know, see a lot of this. You can read a lot of blogs and, and, and learn a lot of stories on YouTube and, and, and things like that. If there are people that aren't in a Christian identity, they fight. Uh, now, I always talk about, you know, fight the system. They resist the system. They, they do things like you say. They, um, they won't go to a bank or uh, they won't go in debt or they won't do this or they won't do that. They, they, to me, it's, it's that instinctual Adamic Israelite spirit that's within people to want to be, to want to be free, not to be shackled. And they find ways. So what my point is is that there are non-Christian identities that they find wholesome ways, sane ways, ways that will not get you in the prison yard or the, or the graveyard. And they find ways to, to live outside the system or at least to the edge of it. And I'm like, boy, if only more Christian identists would do these types of things and we'd help each other out and build our own community. I don't mean necessarily a community, like, but I just mean a, people we know that help each other out, a network. Well, well right, and, and that's fine and noble. But the people I was talking about are the people that want to borrow the money, and, and then they want to use um, – Christian identity and, and, and as, a, as a shield to hide behind while they file their UCC papers and, and um, their, their other Jewish paperwork devices to try to get out of their loans and, and use a religious mask and, and put that religious mask over their own greed. And that's the people I was referring to. The... Um, the idea of coming out of the world, that it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing not to be in debt, not to make money, right? Because if you make money, if you have salaries and things like that, you have to pay taxes. Now, of course, it's hard to get through life without money. So 
most of us do have to have some sort of job and make money. But the more barter you do, the better off you are. Because if you can barter, then you can acquire the things you need with the things that you produced and not because there's no exchange of money and, and not get on the IRS radar and, and the government radar and have to pay taxes on those transactions. The kings of England had basically came to forcing the people to pay their taxes with money because the people were paying their taxes in kind. And, and it's um, difficult for the king to dispense of thousands of animals and chickens and, and, and tons of grain or, or whatever the people would pay him for their taxes when people paid them in kind. So once the kings of England were able to force the people to use money to pay their taxes, that was the first step in the destruction of the barter system. Because people had to have money, they started selling their goods rather than trading them because they needed money to pay the kings in taxes. If you could, I'm not saying that we have to stay away from money. We can't. Even Christ used money when he needed it and, and however he acquired it, if he acquired it. But he required it. So he had to pay his taxes like everybody else. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So the, um, the use of money is not evil, but the love of money is the root of evil. It's not the use of money. This, money is a tool. It's what you do with it that matters. Don't borrow it at interest. Well, that's right. right. It, it's a tool. The, uh, uh, what's the verse? Uh, it says uh, money answers all things. It's simply a tool. And it's not money that's the root of evil. It's the love of it. Um, the, the, there was the Committee of the States, and some of those guys were Christian identists. Some of the Posse Comitatus tax resistors and protesters were Christian identists. Um, so I, I understand perfectly well what, you, what you're talking about there with, uh, well, you can call it the um, UCC movement, the uh, uh, redemption movement, the sovereignty movement, the common law movement. Sometimes they call themselves constitutional law movement. Um, th that's uh, that's that's man trying to use Babylon's system against itself, and that's not going to work. <laughs> no, no. You, you, they, they are, they are to, to use the government's laws against themselves. Even, yeah, you know, these people that, that they jump up and down and, and they scream that the government is unfair because the government um, doesn't abide by their own laws. But the government doesn't make those laws on behalf of the people. It makes them to control the people. That's what a tyranny does. When you look at the history of ancient Israel, the, uh, the, the kings of Israel that were tyrants, their tyranny wasn't quote-unquote legal. Tyranny is not legal when you look at the laws of Yahweh. In, in fact, quite the opposite. But they were still tyrants. And, and Yahweh still permitted them in order to chastise the people. The government is a tool in the hands of God to chastise the people. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord sent the Philistines upon them. And the Philistines oppressed the children of Israel for 40 years. 
And how'd they get out of it? They only got out of it one way. And the children of Israel repented and cried out to Yahweh their God. And Yahweh had mercy and compassion on them and raised up so-and-so, the son of who-and-who, and so-and-so -and -so led an army against the Philistines and ran them out of the country. That's, how it, that's what it took. It took repentance on the part of the children of Israel for Yahweh to lift the oppressors, to give his people a way out of their oppression so that they would return to him. And they did evil again and a few years later, and, and some other country came and oppressed them, the, the Moabites or the Amorites. And, and it's a vicious cycle. And, and until we learn to stay obedient, we're going to continue to be oppressed until we're in the position that we're in today. Right. It's, uh, you know, when the Pharaoh was oppressing the Israelites, they cry, when they cried out to Yahweh, it says he heard them cry out, and that's when he, he uh, redeemed them from Pharaoh. And like you said, the whole time that they were uh, in the promised land, once they got there, they would end up screwing up, and they would, they would sin, they would be oppressed, they would cry out to Yahweh, and he would send a, a, someone to set them free. Second Chronicles 7.14, I'll read it from the Septuagint. If my people who my name is called should repent and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, I also will hear from heaven, and I will be merciful to their sins, and I will heal their land. God has to set us free. <laughs> the punishment of the system, I like to call it the system, Babylon, the government, whatever. Um, that punishment, you know, it's just like the Christian identity. Yeah, I expect these secular-minded, uh, carnal-minded white nationalists to wring their hands constantly and whine and complain about the non-whites and the Jews and whatever, and they're, they're pointing out, you know, factual things. But that's all they do is bitch and moan about that. But Christian identity should be saying, hey, we got the solution. We've got the truth. We've got the solution to this problem that you're pointing out. But see, that requires humility. That, that requires acknowledgement of your God. And they don't want to do that. They would rather eat their babies. And of your sins. You have to acknowledge your God and your sins. And, and that's correct. And that's humility. And true humility, according to the scripture, true humility is obeying the word of God. That's true humility. I, I, I don't remember where, but I did a pretty lengthy digression in a program on that one. So I think with um, one of the general epistles, probably Peter. But, but true humility is, in the scripture, is obedience to God, where arrogance and insolence are rebellion against God. And, and the proud and the arrogant are those who set themselves up as authorities and rebel against God. So, so yes, it takes humility. Repentance requires humility because it requires a recognition of the authority of God and that you have been doing wrong. And, and that's what it boils down to. If my people will forgive what will uh, turn from their wicked ways 
then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. That requires repentance and that requires a recognition of what our people are doing wrong. But most people have no clue what they're doing wrong because they won't sit and study the scripture deeply enough to understand what is good and what is wicked. They won't do it. But which, um, I, I made an exposition on, on my um, 1 Corinthians presentation last night, presenting 1 Corinthians chapter 3, of the milk of the scripture and the meat of the scripture, and, and asserted that the milk of the scripture was what we understand as covenant theology, that, that Yahweh has a covenant with the children of Israel, which is racially exclusive, and that he came to redeem them from their sins and, and to grant them mercy for their sins if they turn to him. That's the milk of the scripture. That's not the meat. The meat of the scripture, studying the meat of the scripture allows one to discern good and evil. And that's according to Paul and his statements in the epistle to the Hebrews. So if the meat of the scripture allows one to discern good and evil, you must study the scripture in order to understand what the sins of our nation and our people are. If you can't understand that, or if you can't accept that, you can never get to a point of repentance. Because most of our people have no idea what's right and what's wrong. They've, they've um, been raised in Jewish relativism, where certain things are okay in certain situations and not okay in other situations. If you um, want a date on a Friday night and you can't get a girl, just go get your, get a guy. It don't matter. <laughs> it's relativism. That's an extreme case of relativism, but that's the way most people think today, that certain things are okay and the law is not consistent. When the law of God certainly is consistent, and, and if one type of behavior is not permissible, it's not permissible ever. Speaking about the extreme examples, of course, homosexuality and, and, and extortion and adultery and things like that. Adultery is never permissible. Fornication, race mixing, is never permissible. So, so it, it's um, what we're at a um, a point where if um, our people don't awaken to their sin within the next several generations, the remnant in the time of in the last time is going to be a very small remnant indeed, because we we are being overrun and breeding ourselves out of existence at an alarming rate, or, or not breeding it up at all, but which is just as bad. That the, um, that the identity Christian has to come to understand what is, what, what is wicked and, and what is edifying to the assembly of God. To, to his kingdom. That's what um, NATO's 
first question is what we should be doing in order to um, further the kingdom of God. And, and um, the scripture is pretty clear on what we should be doing. I think it's pretty basic. I think people are looking for more answers than that, but I, I think it's pretty basic what we should be doing. We should be loving and caring for our brethren. Well, whether they are, um, well, whether they are of our persuasion or not, as long as they profess Christ, they're our brethren even if they don't really know the Christ that they profess. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but that, that would be my assertion, that even the Judeo-Christian is your brother, even if he doesn't understand what Christ is really about, you would have common ground to be able to um, show him the scripture, and he could take it or leave it, but he's still your brother. I, I totally agree. Uh, I at one time was a Judeo, but never a an extreme, like, Zionist type, but I was a Judeo in my younger adult years. Um, you know, and, and um, I've helped uh, bring some Judeos to identity. So, um, no, I mean, we shouldn't, you know, don't need to have a snide, arrogant attitude towards people that don't know their identity yet, because through you or through someone, they will eventually, possibly, learn it. And, um, you know, Christ said that, uh, told us one place that those that don't gather with him, they scatter. But another place he said, those that uh, don't scatter, you know, that, that aren't against him, they're for him. So you have to, ju- once again, talking about judging and discerning, you have to discern. I've, I've met some Judeos that they don't really get my racism, okay? But they don't really speak out against it. They, uh, You know, people I've met in personal life, I mean, they don't speak out against it. They don't give me any uh, crap about it. They uh, so they're not fighting against, they just may not understand, maybe they're just going to be one of those Israelites that's just going to live and die blind to their identity. But they don't fight it. It's those that fight it, that actively fight it. I see it on the social networks, the internet, and I know everybody listening, um, they, they see it all the time. Um, they, they are these uh, trolls, they, you know, these the Judeo-Christian trolls. Uh, I've seen a couple here just the last couple of days. Um, on uh, Facebook that would just, I mean, just just venomous, just vicious, uh, attack you and throw out some Bible verses and tell you how you're a hater and blah, 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 blah. Well, then that person right there, to me, there's something else going on with that individual. Well, well they, are, they are openly scattering the sheep if they're not yes. scattering with Christ. Yes. So they're opposing the word of God. If they won't heed the scripture, then they must be treated as enemies. They can't be treated as our brethren. Right, exactly. So, but just because someone's a Judeo, that don't mean anything. It just means that they've been, like most of us, at one time or another. I've seen on the, uh, someone put in the uh, talk show uh, chat room last night on the Christopher show about how he at one time he was uh, uh, cursed. And I wouldn't say he was accursed. He just didn't know his identity yet. Uh, to me, a person that's accursed is, is a person that rejects the gospel. That's who you dust your feet off of. To me, that's an antichrist. It's someone who willfully and deliberately blasphemes and rejects Christ and fights against Christianity. That's a blasphemer. 
Right. You have to give all Judeo-Christians an opportunity to correctly hear the word of God. Right, that's my point, yeah. And if they reject that opportunity, then you have to brush them off of your feet. Right. They are the dust. You have to... Um, Right, that's absolutely true. But but your um, your brethren in the world, as the Apostle James says, what does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he has faith and has not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warm. bless you, but you won't lift a finger to do anything for that person. You just want some blessing to float down from heaven and land on this person's head. <laughs> depart in peace. It, it, and one, one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not of those things which are needful to the body. What does it profit? In other words, if you want your brother, if you wish him well to be warm and filled, and you have food and clothing, you better be giving it to him if he's destitute. You don't just wish him well. So you have to put your faith into action, which is going to cost you money. And, and that's the way it is. And if you have, and your brother has not, and you're not giving him you don't have faith because you don't really put it to work. And that's what James is saying. Faith, if it has not worked, is dead, being alone. It's ineffectual. If you really believe in the word of God and, and, and in his um, promises and in his efficacy in the world, we see in... Um, I believe it's Deuteronomy chapter 8, that if you have wealth, don't think that you got that wealth from yourself. You got that wealth to advance the kingdom of God. That's one example, and it's a clear one, where if you have wealth and you're not doing something for your brethren who are destitute, then your wealth is for naught. I mean, you may keep it until you die, but it's not going to do you or the kingdom of God any good at all. If you have some skill or some ability, you should use that in order to edify the kingdom of God. If you can, some people can't do anything. They might be able to sing. So, so you go and you help widows and, and cheer them up and, and, and make them feel good. You, you go and you, you um, do some menial task for, for your people if you don't have any, um, any particular skill or talent. And, and if you take your two mites, meaning your menial task, and, and, and give that to your people or into the treasury. That's probably what God expects of you, and, and you fulfill your part. So every day, the Christian should wake up and say, what can I do for my kinsmen today? And I don't think that you have to go out and, and, um, and, and seek people to help. You don't even see the um, early Christians doing, do, doing that necessarily. They sought people to bring the truth of the scripture to. 
That's what they sought people for. I don't think you have to go out and comb the neighborhood looking for some vagabond to give a meal to. God will present you with the people that you should help. And, and that's why the apostles say that you should be kind to everybody that you encounter because you do not know when you may be entertaining angels. So, so that's my opinion. Right. Well, in First uh, John, uh, the Christoginia, First John 3.17, just to go along with what you were talking about, now, who would have the substance of society or of this world and should see his brother having need and shuts off his affections from him, how does the love of Yahweh abide in him? Right. That's First John 3.17. If you have and you see a brother that needs, um, and the scriptures tell us to even do good to our enemies, uh, you know, to be civil towards them, um, in Exodus, it talks about uh, if you see your enemy's oxen or his, you know, his horse or whatever's gotten loose, don't say, yeah, that's my hateful neighbor. I ain't doing nothing for him. No, go get it and, and help him out. Be good to your, your, even your personal enemies because if anything, you're going to heap hot coals upon their head, which means to burn their conscience. Right. But you might, and, and I've done this, um, Many people have done this, where you tr- you just say, you know, you suck at it, you suck it up, and you just treat your enemy nice, and you do something nice for them, and uh, next thing you know, you've made a friend for life. That's uh, what I would hope if, if your enemy is um, of the good tree variety. Yes, you you should make a friend for life because your enemy should realize and and um, that you're not that bad person he thought you were, and his heart should soften and incline towards you. Right. Exactly. So it gets, uh, and of course, I'm, when I'm an enemy, I'm at your personal enemy, a fellow white folks. Well, well, of course, because God's enemies are a totally different story. <laughs> That's right. We're not talking about them. <laughs> um, but, yeah, we, we should, uh, there's something, you know, uh, <laughs> Every day when you get up, your feet hit the floor. Um, you know, you need to remember you're awake because Yahweh allows you to, to live through the night and, and into another day. And every day you should think, what can I do today to, to bring God glory? What's something, maybe just a little something, what can I do today for him to make him smile even? What, what can I do for Father Yahweh? You should love him with all your heart, mind, and soul. All of your being, you should be in love with your eternal maker, the ever-living Yahweh, your father, your God. You should be in love with him and seek to to be in love with him. Every day of your life, he should be on your mind. Uh, Whenever you're in love with your spouse or, you know, somebody, whatever, you think about him every day, well, you should be in love with Yahweh, that spiritual love, and love him as the commandment tells us, to love him with everything you've got. We said mind, soul, and body. It meant every bit of your fiber, your being. Seek to, to love God and to seek his truth and to set aside yourself, your, your, uh, what, what you want, what, uh, your standards and things like that, and, and seek to, what, what is his standards? What, what does he want? And, that's what Christians should be doing. The more that you do that, not only will you be blessed in life, and you will be blessed for that, 
but you also will be a blessing to those around you. You will be a light in this world of darkness. You'll, it, it, it will, um, that's walking the walk. Right. And Jesus said, uh, he spoke in John 17, uh, 14, 15, 16, I believe it is. He spoke of uh, how we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And then the epistle, 1 John 4, 4, speaks of uh, uh, we are of God, and he, over, he has overcame, prevailed, and greater is he that is in you. This is just a paraphrase. Um, and back to the, the Gospel of John, there's some notes I wrote down here. It says, be of good cheer in John 16, be of good cheer, even though we have tribulations and troubles in life, because Christ has overcome the world. So we're in the world, but we're not of the world, and that means the society. We're, in the, we're on this planet. We're on Earth. We're, and we're, you can say we're physically in society. I mean, we work, we buy things, we live, we blah, blah, blah. But we're not spiritually of the world. And that's what it's talking about, like in Isaiah 52, 11, where it says, depart and go out and touch not the unclean thing. And then in 2 Corinthians 6, 17, which is basically referring to that in Isaiah 52, 11, about coming out from among uh, the society of the world or spiritually Babylon and to separate and not touch the unclean thing and God will receive you. And then in Revelation 18, 4, talks about coming out of Babylon and don't partake for sins and place. That's spiritually coming out. In other words, your mind, your mind, in your mind, you are coming out of the way the world thinks, the way the, the, the world. Uh, when Christ said to seek first the kingdom of, of God, and all the other things, including your daily bread, the food that you eat, and the water that you drink, will be given to you. You are to, Your duty every day when your feet hit the floor is to seek the kingdom of God in, in, in your mind, to live and represent God's way, the only way, the true way, the Christian way, to live that life and to be, um, to be an example of that life. And people will. Your fellow Israelites, your fellow whites, they're going to come to you. They're going to want what you have. They're, they're going to see that there's something different about the way you are. There's a peace about you. And they can have that too. If they, but they have to. They as well must come out of this carnal-minded, evil society. It, it's a mindset. And the media and even the internet, a lot of the stuff that's on the internet, I should say, all of this stuff is pounded into people's heads, this, this trash that the world throws at you to get you thinking. Now, Bill, I know that, um, I, or I want you to talk a little bit, if you will, because I'm trying to segue here into this. <laughs> I want you to share the story of what you were telling me about, of what you've experienced in life, with not just the media, but what you have seen with the entertainment on television and the sports and things like that, and how that steals our people's minds from the way. It does. But first, let me say that you're right. Coming out of the world doesn't mean to go bury yourself in a cave in Montana or, 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 and, and, and live off of um, twigs and barks and, and locusts and wild honey. Well, that sounds delicious. Well, we can't all do that. Paul said that um, in, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul said, but if any provides not for his own, and especially 
those of his own house, then he denies the faith and, and is worse than the faithless or, or an infidel, as the King James has it. And that means you're probably going to need a job or, or you're going to need to do something productive. And to do that and to be able to provide for others, you're going to have to engage with people from the world. Paul was a tent maker. Do you think he only sold tents to Christians? Or did he sell tents to anybody who would buy them? He probably sold some tents to Jews. He probably sold some tents to pagans. But he needed to be a tent maker in order to at least try to pay his own way. And that's a noble cause. That's not ignoble. ignoble. So Paul dealt with the world. We have to deal with the world, but coming out from the world means to focus our attention on the things of our God and to edify our kinsmen and, and to keep away from the idolatry and the evil things in the world that the world produces. And, and that's what coming out of the world means. That's what Christians should separate themselves. So what shouldn't you care about? You shouldn't care about what the Jewish media produces. You shouldn't care about the stars in Hollywood. You shouldn't care about the niggers running a ball up and down a field on TV. You shouldn't care about the politics of the world. Because there's only one king, and that's Christ. So why do you care who's sitting in the White House next week, the nigger or the Jew, the nigger or the Jew? None of them can be Christ-like. Neither of them can be any good for our people. They're all puppets of Solomon Brothers and the Jewish investment bankers in New York. It doesn't matter if the nigger or the Jew is sitting in the White House. It has no bearing on your personal life at all because as a Christian, you should be disassociated from the world. You shouldn't care about it. You do what you have to do. You, you pay to Caesar what is Caesar's so that you can give to God what is God's. But your focus is on the things of God. And if your focus is on the things of God, then he will take care of you and you will have enough. You will have your daily bread, as you mentioned, and, and your wife or whatever else you need to get through life, you will have. And, and that's the Christian promise, as long as you stay focused on Christ and on what he wants and on his law. So coming out from the world means putting away idolatry, usury, luxury, immodesty, and, and all those things which are antithetical to Christ. But you still have to deal with the world. What, I had, um, what we had discussed earlier, and, and, and it's a discussion I've had before on my open forums, is the whole um, idea of engaging in the world, and, and people might see it as harmless. Even identity Christians will watch a football game. And they'll sit there every Sunday or every Saturday if it's college or Monday night and watch this football game. 
and they will make excuses for it. They'll justify somehow watching the football game. But you have nieces, and you have daughters, and they see you watching the football game. You made the analogy when you heard this of sitting in the idol's temple, and one of the weak in the faith sees you sitting in the idol's temple, and they're sucked into it. Well, you're watching that football game every weekend for 20 years. You're looking at those niggers running that ball up and down the field, and you're rooting them on. And you think it's harmless. But little Susie's been watching you as she's grown up for 20 years. And one day she brings a nigger home and says, Daddy or Uncle Ryan, meet my new boyfriend. If you've been watching that nigger and rooting him on for 20 years on that TV, you've made him an idol. Little Susie brought your idol home, and she's going to marry him. How could you say no? How could you say no? That's the example you set for little Susie for 20 years. You can't say no. You have no moral basis. Yeah, you could get mad, but Susie is not going to understand your anger. She's thinking she did good. She brought home one of your icons. You've been worshiping these people for 20 years, running that ball up and down the court. How could you say no? You can't say no. American men have been worshiping these niggers on that TV every Sunday since pro sports became big on television. What's that, 70 years? No wonder why we're in this condition. That's just one facet of what we should be away from as Christians. That's just one aspect, but it's a very damaging one. So, so that's the analogy I was trying to make. And, and that's true not only of football, it's true of movies. It's true of television sitcoms. It's true of all of those things, those idols that the Antichrist have introduced into our homes that we turn our attention to and focus on, that's idolatry. That's foul worship. The result is the same as it was in the ancient Israelite kingdom. When you engage in foul worship, you start sleeping with the Canaanites. It's the same thing. It's absolutely the same thing in the ancient, uh, the ancient uh, different pagan priests and stuff. Uh, well, with Pharaoh and, and, and Moses and Aaron, uh, you know, the, 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 some of the magicians there were able to do some of the uh, little tricks there. The, I think it was the first three plagues. They were able to turn their staffs into snakes. Um, there's always been this magic, or at least, or illusions of sort. Well, today, uh, the television, it's nothing wrong with the technology of the television or, or anything. It's that the Jew has taken over. The Jew brags about it. Uh, more than a few years ago, a Jew wrote a book. Well, actually, I think it's more than one Jew wrote books about uh, bragging about how they run and, and took over and control Hollywood from the early days on in the movie industry. Um, I always have to try to explain to people that there's not – there's not a movie or television show or even a sitcom that's not about propaganda. There's a, there's a message. What you're watching is propaganda. We talk about 
during wartime, World War II, there used to be these propaganda war propaganda films shown in the theaters and stuff, you know, to get G.I. Joe all stirred up and everybody support the war against the evil Hitler. Um, well, all movies and television shows are propaganda. You've got to understand the people that write these shows, they have an agenda. They're, most of them are Jews. Most of them are Jews, or at least the producers are, and they have a clear agenda. It may be just a regular show about just a, you know, whatever type of story, simple something, and they will, and everybody listening to this program knows that um, they, they will have, uh, they'll make a point of putting in the non-whites and, and the mongrels and, you know, or the comedies with, like, Adam Sandler and that ugly-ass Jew. He's always got, you know, some pretty Aryan woman that, you know, he's going to win over at the end of the movie. Um, it's, it's all about propaganda. It's all it, – it's anti-Christian propaganda. Show me a movie or television show that is pro-Bible, pro-Christian, that's put out by the mainstream uh, movie industry or television industry. Well, you're not going to find one. It's all anti-Christian, anti-white, pro-race mixing. And now when they remake these movies like Robin Hood or whatever, Robin Hood or King Arthur, they've always got them you know, saddled up with some uh, non-white sidekick who's the smart one, some Negro that showed up there in you know, ancient England somehow or another around King Arthur, uh, you know, or hanging out with Robin Hood or something. They've got to insert the non-white in there. Um, it's it's, it's it, there's an agenda and 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 they they smirk and they laugh at this stuff. So even if you, I, I'm not a sports person. I don't enjoy sports at all. I'm into martial arts, but I'm not into sports or anything like that. Um, but uh, the, the uh, you don't have to you be like me. You don't have to watch sports at all. But if you watch TV or movies, you're getting the same stuff that Bill was talking about. And your children grow up and see you watching. Um, uh, some non-white, I, I don't know, like uh, Dwayne the Rock, that wrestler, he's a mongrel, part, what, Samoan or something? Oh, what, I don't know him. <laughs> I'm, yeah, you would call him a squirrel. Oh, but, uh, you know, people idolize, you know, uh, they, they remade the movie, the, the Walking Tall movie, about Sheriff Buford Tesser, and uh, they, turned, they made The Rock uh, the remake. Well, the original Sheriff uh, of that movie that it's based on, the true story it's based on, uh, was white. He wasn't a Samoan mongrel mutt squat monster. Okay? Well, well, it's just the the the, um, the Jews that sit as the powers that be in Hollywood just mocking white culture and civilization. Yeah, that's, 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 that's a mock author movie. They're just mocking English civilization. Yeah, they're sitting back there going, no, 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 stupid boy. I should say British in that instance. But, yeah, they're just mocking us. They're just mocking whites. And, and that's what we should expect Jews to do. And, and they control all of this media. They control all of the um, – every single one of the major media outlets. It doesn't matter if they're – Fox or ABC or Fox or CNN. Jews own Fox as well as they own CNN. What makes people think that the people that control 
or own, quote-unquote, all of this media infrastructure are going to use it in a fair and balanced manner. Of course they're not. They're only going to use it to promote their own agenda. You don't own a newspaper. You don't own a website to be fair and balanced, do you? Of course not. You own a website to push your biases onto whoever comes across your website. The television is the same way. I don't know what makes people think it could possibly be fair and balanced if it's in privately owned hands or even if it's a, a public company owned or controlled by a few people at the top. It's not going to be fair and balanced. It's going to reflect the spirit of its owners. And our media reflects the spirit of the corrupted, perverted, antichrist Jew. That's all we should expect. So Christians should totally separate themselves from that. You shouldn't watch television. That, that, that to me, is sin. It's not sin because you're going to go to hell just for watching television. And, and the television... The technology itself isn't bad. There's nothing wrong. It's a wonderful technology if it was used properly. But you're going to harm yourself because you are allowing the Jew to fill your head with garbage watching television. The Jew, Satan, is programming your mind when you are watching television. It is a programming, absolutely correct. It is to teach. When our, uh, just to give another example, it, it's not just entertainment. Even Shakespearean plays, even ancient plays that you know the Germanics might have done, uh, you know, in the community, uh, uh, you know, around the campfire or whatever. Uh, it, it was to teach, to teach something. Um, so when you put, think about the our enemies, Satan, of course, is Hebrew for. Uh, adversary. Our adversary owns the television and the movie industry and, and the music industry and all that. Our adversary owns all that, just like they, just as much as they own the the money system. That's theirs. It belongs to our adversary. It's not ours. And the more that we seek to separate ourselves as much as possible. And the more we seek to walk the way of Christ instead of the way that the world does. Parents used to educate, train, teach, and entertain their children at night. At each other. And now, families sit in front of televisions and the Jew educates, trains, and, and, and um, all, all those things. And, and they teach your children and you every night because you sit around the television with your family. So the people in Hollywood or in New York or, or wherever, they have taken and, and, and you've given it to them. You've given that into their hands by sitting in front of their television every night and they've taken the reins and they train and educate your children and you because you're surrendering yourself to them. And, and there's no more um, transmission of, of wisdom and, and myth and story from generation to generation anymore. We all get it from the Jew.
Yeah. Y'all watch television. That's a good point. <laughs> that transmission, the transmission of history of our people. People think that you know we white people were just around beating Kute Kente. Uh, we were John Wayne uh, shooting Indians in the face for no reason. Uh, we were rounding up Jews and gas and then all you know all of these things. That the poor noble red man, he was so peaceful and he would just wanted to give us a Thanksgiving turkey. And, and, and give us some corn, and, and we and we just raped and pillaged and plundered his villages. Oh, um, you know, that's people's perception. Their perception of our history of our people is off of the Hollywood and, and TV. And, and our real history and the real plight of our, of our white people has gone by the wayside because we've surrendered our evening culture to the Jew and basically the education of our children. If, if you want to walk the Christian walk, you're going to throw the TV out or only use it disconnected from the cable and only use it for family movies and, and for maybe others' families' movies or, or instructional videos and things like that, where the TV is a wonderful tool. And that's fine. YouTube's. Melissa and I, when, when we were in Bristol for two years, we, Melissa had a 48-inch television. We only used it to watch YouTubes. That was all we had. We, we'd watch the occasional few YouTubes on it. That was it. Conspiracy videos, things like that. I would never, what we, we've been here in Florida for three months. The TV has not been connected to the cable yet, and it won't be. But we have no need for the Jewish entertainment. The, the, um, the, the world of, of the scripture and, and the classics and the other things that we discuss all the time and, and the, um, the things going on in our society, that is how we fill all our time. And, and that's what we should be concerned with. And if you don't have children yourself and, and your brother has children and, and you live within... A, a decent drive that you could spend the evening with your brother and his children, you should be there every damn night. Extended family should be together every night, every weekend when they're not working, enjoying each other's company, learning from each other, learning things together, um, participating in sporting events or, or in fishing or whatever, knitting, sewing, it don't matter, carpentry, woodwork, automotive, that they, families should be doing all of that together with all of their spare time. They shouldn't be sitting in front of a Jew television. If you took your son and, and, and um, learned woodshop every weekend, your, your son would have an education in woodshop in two years, and, and so would you probably. It's there's so many things that we used to do before television that were valuable life skills that were transmitted from generation to generation that aren't anymore because families are locked into Jewish entertainment. If we can't do these simple things, if we can't break free of, of Babylon with the simplest of things, then we don't deserve the kingdom of God. Forget it. You're never going to get it. You're never, it's, God's not going to hand you his kingdom because you're a white Israelite. He's not going to do it. He's going to 
bring us into his kingdom when we are willing to be obedient to his will. And, and, and we can't do that if Satan is our schoolmaster, which is what's happening when we have our focus and our attention on the world and, and we're expecting solutions in the world. It's not going to happen. There's never going to be a solution. Republicrats and, and um, Demikins and, and, and the Jewish banks and, and the Jewish media conglomerates, they're never going to give you a solution because they have the entire world enslaved to them, and they're loving it right now. They figure they're going to keep this forever. It, it's the Jewish millennium right now. <laughs> and, and Christians, even identity Christians, still surrender to that. And we shouldn't. We should separate ourselves from it. Matthew 6, well, beginning at, well, actually, beginning at verse 19, I'm not going to read all of it. Uh, just kind of read over a little bit to make my point. Matthew six nineteen. This is from the Christagenia. Do not store up for you treasure upon earth, where of course moth and, and rust and, and, and thieves. But to, to store it up, your treasures in heaven. He's been speaking of the kingdom of God. Verse twenty two. The lamp of the body is the eye. If your eye it's sincere. In the King James, it says single. Or if you're single-minded, your whole body shall be bright. He's speaking spiritually. He's speaking here in parables. He's talking about being focused. Uh, what you were saying, Bill, you were talking about being focused, what we should be paying attention to, what we should be putting our mind upon. Like I said, when you get up every morning, your feet hit the floor. This is a day that the Lord hath made. Think that to yourself and say, what else can I do for Father today? Um. Verse 24 says you can't, everybody knows this one, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve Babylon and the kingdom of Yahweh God. Um, on down to verse 25, it says, uh, do not care for your life. Now, he's not saying be stupid and be lazy and just say, you know, Yahweh, drop some manna and some quail down, and uh, could you drop me some good German beer down too? No. What he's saying here is your focus should first be on living your life in a Christian, righteous manner. When he says, do not care for your life or what you should eat or what you drink or what your body's going to wear, verse 25. And then he gives the example, he tells us that the birds, he knows about the birds out here, how they eat. Have you ever all ever wondered how birds always are able to eat and take care of themselves? It's the way, yes, Yahweh God in control. But now, you go down verse 32, for all these things, talking about food and raiment and the world, and this is the world. The world's always worried and lives for money and material things and security, but carnal physical security. Verse 32, for all these things the heathen seek after, indeed your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But you seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, not the great white hope, not a political party, not, uh, you know, any of these other silly, this crap, 
that people want to say, well, we're going to set our people free if you can sign this petition or do this, that, and the other. We are supposed to be seeking the kingdom of Yahweh God. We are supposed to be living it now, living it now, preferring our brother, seeking our brothers, uh, looking out for our brethren. I, when I lived in, um, in the upstate South Carolina, I know for a fact that uh, at least a couple of the brothers are listening to the show tonight. Um, when I lived in South Carolina, for years, twice a month, because some of them lived quite a, uh, quite a distance from me, we made it a weekend, every other weekend, twice a month, beginning Friday evening. Some of the guys came up Friday evening. The Saturday to Sunday, now some of the guys lived in, in my same county, so they would go home that uh, on Saturday evening, and they would come back Sunday. We made it a two-day event twice a month for years. We got. We did. I did. Uh, I did Bible studies. I conducted Bible studies. I was basically uh, kind of like their pastor, Bible study teacher. And uh, but we did Bible studies. We did. We pray together, and then we would uh, we would train in martial arts together. We would do uh, functions together. We'd go on basically field trips. We'd do things together. We'd hang out together. We would drink beer together. We would joke together. We would cry together. Um, we were a family, and this was something we did. I miss it. Uh, I miss it greatly. And now where I live right now, presently where I live, I'm very isolated. I haven't been around a Christian brother like that in a few years now. I'm very, very isolated. That's the great majority of identity Christians. Right. So, so you embrace... Now, those of your, your your neighbors, when I say neighbors, of course, I mean your 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 fellow apparently whites or, or those who are apparently white who who live near you. You embrace them. You embrace your cousins, your kinsmen, who, whoever you can reach in 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 your um, periphery and and attempt to bring the word to them, and and that would would be the best that you could do in that situation. And, and if you're holed up and besieged, then I see failure as God's way of steering us in another direction. And if you're holed up and besieged, you have to pray for that other direction. And I've done this, I mean, I have experience with this in prison. There were times when there were 50 guys on a prison yard that I could talk to, bring the word to, fellowship with, and there were times when there, there weren't three or four, and I hardly saw them. So I hold myself up, and I studied, and, and, and um, did my essays and whatever I could do, and, and unweighted an opportunity to see more of my brethren and, and be able to have that communion once again. That, that's the way it is. And, and right. I, I, before, before I had that, I was blessed with that. I had went through uh, I was a few years where I was totally alone and isolated, and all I did was just read my Bible and study and read things on history and stuff. That's what I do now. I fast, I pray, I just uh, involve myself in my studies. Of course, you know about this, Bill. We talk about this stuff. Um, getting gross in my studies and things like that. And I, I, I prayed, and I know that Father has made a way for me, and, and Bill, you know about what I'm talking about. There will be a way, but Yahweh sometimes isolates us. It may be for a couple of months. It may for, be for a couple of years. 
he isolates you, and that's a time to study, to pray, to fast. Uh, I'm, I'm a firm believer in, in fasting. Um, and, and seek his face, and then he will, you know, uh, he's going to open doors for you. He always does. He doesn't want us isolated. He, doesn't, he may give you an Elijah ministry, if you will, every now and then. Sometimes you feel totally isolated in the wilderness. But it, it's kind of like how I feel right now. But um, he's not going to leave you that way. He wants you out there doing what you've got to be doing and what you can be doing to be an edification to your brothers. Um, 1 Peter 2.5 refers to us as lively stones. We're not just stones. We're lively stones. We're all together in this. 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, talks about the old, what I call the body parts chapter. It talks about, you know, some of us are little fingers, some of us are an ear, some of us are a toe, some of us are a kneecap, some of us are a thigh. But we all work together, and, and um, we're all part of that body. We're all part, we're all part of, we're all lively stones in that building. We all serve a part, and what we do is we find our part, find what talents and gifts we have and abilities we have. Like, like you were saying, Bill, if we don't have um, if you don't have money, you know, some people have a lot of money and they're able to help their Christian brethren out, but, or, or ministries like Christakia. But if they don't have that, maybe they have a talent or they, they, you know, they can help you in some other way. And we work together in that, um, that spiritual brotherhood, uh, like a fraternity, but it's much more important than a man-made fraternity. And it's a, it's a brotherhood Oh, well, the sisters, too. And we work together and, and, and uh, make things work for each other and help each other out. Well, well, absolutely. You may not have money, but you might you might know how to carve wood. So you teach your nephews and their friends or your children how to carve wood. I, I mean, there's always something that you can... Um, bring to the community, which is your wider, um, the, the kinsmen, the, the white Israelite stock in, in your periphery, in your neighborhood, in your town. You, you could, um, that there's always something that you can transmit to others to help edify the body of Christ. That there's, you may have to look for it, but we all have some skill or something that we can do for others. If we dedicate our time on Sundays bringing old women to the Walmart so that they can get their groceries, that's something that you that's right for your family. And, and that's how you could spend your days a lot more usefully than in front of that damn television or off at some damn football game rooting on some nigger running a ball down the field who's not going to give one whit about you when the game is over. Win or lose, he don't care about you. Why are you rooting for him? And, and that's, well, that's just an example. It could be, it could be NASCAR. People, I, I mean, there's a, there's a sore spot there because I know a, a thousand rednecks that love NASCAR. And, and I can see the attraction, but you're rooting for those people for a, a particular driver or whatever week after week, and you 
six, four, five hours, six hours of your time that you could be spending with your family and your kindred in front of that television watching that NASCAR race. And, and at the end of the day, Dale Jr. doesn't give a crap about you, so why would you spend six hours rooting for him? And, and your rooting for him didn't make him win or lose. So what, what's the point? It's just idolatry. It's idolatry. Because you could have spent that six hours taking your grandnephew fishing and teaching him how to fish. So, so there's always something that... that um, Christians can do better, even myself, there's always something we can do better. And, and, and that's how, um, to answer Nathan's question, what can we do to, to um, forward the kingdom of, of God, teach our brethren God's laws and God's word, but also teach our brethren how to have communion with one another apart from all of the idols that the Jew has set up in our society. And, and, and do something each day to help your kindred, to help. What were the apostles concerned with in, in, in Acts chapter 6? Widows and orphans. What was Yahweh concerned with in Hosea and, and Micah? What weren't the children of Israel doing in, in, in part, that, that was part of the cause Yahweh had against them. They were not being dealing justly with widows and orphans, with the weak and, and, and the helpless of our society. So there's always something that we could be doing to further the kingdom of God. And, and to do that, we have to separate ourselves from the idols which Satan has set up in our world. We have to get away from that. We have to get out of that mindset and concentrate on our kindred and put our energy into um, edifying our kindred. That's it. Right. And uh, you're talking about there in James, first chapter, talking about being the doer of the word. He also says there, that we're to watch over the orphans and the widows to keep yourself unspotted or unblemished from society or the world. Uh, it says in Hebrews 12, 1, to lay aside all pretension and distraction and run the race that's set before us. Okay, how does a Christian run the race? He runs it on the way, the path, the Christian path. That's the Christian way. He keeps himself unspotted or unblemished from this society. And he should be busy looking over the orphans, the widows, his brethren, seeking his brother's prosperity or, or helping his brother or, or, or sister or whatever, looking out for each other. We should be focused on the kingdom of God, imagining ourselves, how would we act if we did live in the time, like you said, Bill, at the beginning of this show, if we did live in the time of King David or Solomon and we had the kingdom, or, and I would go back even further than that in the title of Judges, how would we behave? Would we be happy? Would we be content? Or would we be craving 
the merchant, the Canaanite, the Baal religions and worships and, and the things of this society that we're not supposed to be spotted by. Well, well life is a lot more satisfying without the television, without the movies, without the, the, the idolatry of, of, the, um, of the world. Life is a lot more satisfying when you spend your days with your kindred. Have you ever noticed, I know you have, Bill, I know you've spoken about it, I know you've written about it, uh, the fear porn that comes off the media, you know, with the Ebola or, or the, you know, ISIS, the terrorists, that type of stuff going on, the constant fear and, 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 and just stirring up of the flesh and the carnality, it's that, that's that demonic witchcraft, that's the magicians of the Baals of today creating these, these, these spells upon people. And like I said, I know you've written about this. And other Christians have too. They've pointed this out. And it's distracting you from where your Christian mind is supposed to be. Now, you can be in the way of the world and think like the world and wring your hands all about because we have a nigger mongrel as a president or realize, you know what, the whole political system is Baal and Babylon anyway. If they don't represent Yahweh's laws. So why does that even matter to you you're to be unspotted by that. And I know of many Christian identists that are wrapped up in the politics of the system of Satan when they shouldn't be spotted or bothered with that stuff and they should be focusing on the widows and the orphans and laying aside all this pretension and distraction what the Word says. That's what the, what the Word says. I didn't say that. That's what the Word says. That is the way. That is Christianity. That's what we need to be doing. Absolutely, taking care of the weaker of our own kindred and not getting tied up in the world. Amen. Um, the apostles, you know, when Herod Agrippa was struck dead by Yahweh in Acts chapter 12, the apostles didn't sit around in Acts 13 and worry about who was going to be king. And Herod Agrippa was a pretty evil bastard. And, and, of course, his son, Herod Agrippa II, succeeded him, but that was whoever they wanted to be king. Well, well, the apostles didn't sit around and worry about it. They did. That's things like the scripture says in Matthew 6. If you're worried about who the president is, then you are worried about what the heathen worry about, what Jesus said in Matthew 6. You're worried about the carnality, the physical crap of the sewer known as Babylon. That's not... That the system is not your system. It never has been your system. We already have all the legislation we need. It's called the Bible. Absolutely. If, if, we, uh, if we follow God's laws, as Peter said, if we suffer as a Christian, that then, that then we're to be accredited by God for that. But we shouldn't suffer if we're chasing the things of, of the world that then well, we shouldn't suffer at all. Well, we um, are seeking the rewards of the world. God will probably punish us for that. We should fear God and, and not fear the world at all. So, so the whole culture of fear, well, which is very, and, and it really um, disturbs me that so many in Christian identity are, are um, swayed, are caught up by the culture of fear, what the markets are going to do tomorrow. Who cares what the markets do tomorrow? If you, um, 
if, if, if you are, are firm in your Christian beliefs, you should expect the Jews to steal all the money that's in the markets tomorrow. You should expect that. And, and if it doesn't happen, then fine. But if it happens, well, that, that's the way the ball rolls because you should expect Satan to be treacherous. It doesn't matter who is um, sitting in the White House because whoever's sitting in the White House is going to do the bidding of the same devil that just stole all the money out of the stock market with the last bubbles. And it's, we, we should expect Satan to act that way. We should expect Satan to be in control of the White House. And, and, and who's sitting here, it, there today is proof of that, and that affirms it for us, but we should expect it. And, and the next election cycle, we should expect one devil to be running against another devil, and it doesn't matter which devil wins. We shouldn't be involved in that. We shouldn't care who is going to replace Herod as the king. We should have our attention on Christ and our focus on what we can do for our kindred, his people. That's it. That's all we should care about. You know, Bill, um, well, Matthew 6 sums it up, and then, of course, Habakkuk uh, chapter 2, verse 4 tells us the just shall live by politics. No, by faith. Hebrews 10.38 tells us the just shall live by the stock market. No, by faith. We are to live by faith. Now, there are, um, there are uh, well, Judeos and, and the sort that they consider themselves so spiritually minded when they say that we're to seek the kingdom of God first and things. They're looking off in the sky somewhere for the kingdom of God, the rapture, whatever. I don't want anyone to think that I or you in this program tonight or have ever stood for that we're saying look for some kingdom to float up, you know, we're going to float up in the sky somewhere. We're talking about the kingdom of God that's within us that we're to represent here and to live for and to be uh, speaking of what the way of Christianity, the way, as it's referred to numerous times in the book of Acts, is the way of Christ, it is the way towards the kingdom of, of God. It is not the way of the kingdom of the republic or whatever state of system they've made up. These are distractions. We're supposed to be representing God's law, not man's made-up law systems and their made-up laws. We're supposed to be representing God's kingdom, his political system, if you will, and his laws, and focus on that. Now, do we need to go out and be a Phineas and a Gideon and an Ehud and a Samson? No, that's not what we're... I, I understand those actions, but I would never encourage someone to go out in their flesh and, and, and act that way. You know what Father calls the Israelite people to rise and thresh? That's the innocent story. Gideon had a license to act that way from Yahweh, and he right. could not fail. If any man stands up today and, and pretends that he could defeat the beast and he believes he has a license from Yahweh, he better have it or he's doomed. He's immediately doomed. 
And if he does have a license from Yahweh, he doesn't need our help. He won't be on the damned internet begging people to join him. He won't be there. He'll be out in the street doing it, and he'll succeed. If he's on the internet begging people to join him to defeat the government, then he's just a troll. He's a Jew troll. He's working for the system. He's working against Christians. Gideon wasn't on a damned internet looking for people to help him. He knew he had a commission from God, and he just went and got it done. And it was between him and God. Amen. The same thing with Phineas. Phineas didn't get arrested after he did what he did for a hate crime. Right. He just went and did it. He knew he had a license from God to do it. He did it, and he was rewarded for it. He wasn't on the damned internet trying to get people to join his 10,000 warlords or some other crazy harebrained scheme. Phineas was given a covenant of peace. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and he had a license to do what he did. But you know what? He just took action. If you think it's time to take action, you better not be on a damned internet trying to um, abscond other people or persuade other people to join you. If you think it's your time to take action, you get your ass out there in the street and you march on Washington. If God is with you, you will not fail, and you'll go down in the, in, in the scriptures like Gideon did. But if you have to enlist help on the Internet to your cause, you're a fraud. You know, men like, Jew troll. men like Ehud and Phineas and Gideon and Joshua, men like that, they were walking righteously before Yahweh God before they took whatever action they took, they were righteous men. They were living a righteous life just simply living for Yahweh. Absolutely. Be about your father's business. Just keep his, keep his law the best you understand. Walk in faith. Love your brothers and your sisters. Seek to stand for, for the truth of Yahweh. Be his witness, as he says in Isaiah 43. And love your brother and, and seek your brother's on ways you can help your brothers and sisters and spread the, the gospel, this good message to others that they may also grow in Christ and 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 uh, and, and uh, grow in faith and obedience. And if Yahweh puts a spirit of Samson or Gideon or Phineas on you, you will not fail, and you don't have to advertise, and you sure won't do it out of your own ego. Absolutely. And that's what we have. We have these egotistical bastards and Jew trolls out there trying to drum up people to trouble and, and, and to trap the minds and, and the hearts and, and the bodies of the gullible. That's all they're trying to do. They may as well be um, working for the Muslims or the Jews or um, what one of those FBI operations that trap people. They're scams. That's all they are. So Christians should not get caught up in taking things in their own hand. That's the bottom line. Well, well, my servers are going to... I would love to continue this conversation, and we might have a second part of this, walking the walk, 
but but um, my server is cut off in 10 minutes, and, and we're just about out of time. If you have any closing remarks, you're absolutely welcome. Well, I just wanted to remind people, we are to live the pure religion before Christ, and, and like I said, you know, from James and, 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 and uh, uh, Titus 2.12, we should live discreetly and righteously and not worldly. We don't need to be spotted by the world. Stop looking for worldly or carnal solutions. Read Matthew 6 chapter. We are to be seeking Yahweh's kingdom and doing his will and stop looking for worldly solutions to worldly problems. Absolutely. What we should do is pull our mission. You know, I sincerely believe that the valid Christian ministry is the Elijah ministry, turning the hearts of the fathers to the children, turning the hearts of the children to the fathers. Christ professed himself that very thing where he said that it is necessary for Elijah to come first. Identity is doing that. It's giving Christians a and historical foundation for their faith, white Christians. And that creates, I believe, that creates Christians who want to be proactively obedient to Christ. That's what we need. And um, Brother Ryan, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. We may be back here again in the months to come with this topic. Praise Yahweh. And good night. Thank you.